Welcome to Talking Feds. I'm Harry Littman, and we are live at the, before an enthusiastic, raucous crowd at the Texas Tribune Festival, where Lyle Lovett just told us we're dealing, and we are, with big ideas and important uh, conversations these three days. There's an overarching set of questions, I think, at this conference, notwithstanding the scores of different panels. And I distill it down to, to what degree have our political, cultural, and legal uh, institutions been degraded? I was going to say affected, but degraded in the last eight years. And what has to happen to restore them to relative good health? And these are monumental questions that we don't normally face, but we do here. So this panel takes up those questions, but with respect to federal law enforcement in particular, which absorbed relentless attacks, literally from Trump's first day in office, his memorable visit to the CIA, uh, which Trump, in fact, promises to alter radically and more should he regain the White House. So I wanted to talk with these distinguished guests about whether the leadership, the daily operations, the morale of the agencies, how it's been affected, and whether we're now beginning to slough off the effects of Trumpism or to invoke the title of this panel, which came from one among us, but not me, you can try to guess. Has Trump won? So to dig into these questions, we have a superb panel of commentators who know law enforcement really better than anyone else, and they are. Frank Figliuzzi. They, actually, they require no uh, introduction. Let's just go to the discussion. Yeah. Right. Um, a national security analyst, regular columnist for NBC News and MSNBC. Frank, of course, was the assistant director, number two in charge of counterintelligence at the FBI. He was there for 25 years, I think, as a special agent, directed all espionage investigations across the government. He's the author. You may have read a couple years ago, The FBI Way, and you will soon be able to read his forthcoming The Long Haul. Actually, can you give us a sentence on what that's about, Frank? Yeah, re real quick. So many of you know that years ago I did a podcast, and it was uh, it was fun. It was called uh, The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. My second episode ever in that podcast, I interviewed the head of a behavioral unit who was a crime analyst at Quantico, Virginia, and I asked her the simple question, what do you do? And she said, well, I'm the head of the Highway Serial Killings Initiative. And I said, excuse me. And uh, she proceeded for the next hour, you can check out the episode, it's called Long Haul, to explain that there are hundreds, yes, hundreds of unsolved murders along our nation's highways. And I was trying to be politically correct, and I simply said, well, you're not implying that, of course, the long haul trucker community is doing this. She said, no, absolutely, that's yeah. what we think is happening. So, that's my book. It'll be out uh, in the spring, and you can pre-order next year. <laughs> Wherever good books are sold, like Amazon. Okay, Ellie Honig, uh, a CNN senior legal analyst. He's really a double threat, unusual in this. In the, well, because he worked as both a federal and state prosecutor. That really is all the more important these days. He was nominated for an Emmy in the category of Outstanding News Analysis, Editorial, and Opinion. He's the author of two books, most recently, Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It, and more relevant to this panel will be my first book, yeah. Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Corrupted the Justice Department. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> Juliet Kayyem, a national security analyst at CNN and the senior Belfer lecturer in international security at Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and a good friend. Well, everyone here is a good friend of the podcast. We're really lucky. She's faculty chair of the Homeland Security and the Security and Global Health uh, Projects. Juliet served as President Obama's Assistant Secretary for Intergovernmental Affairs at DHS. She's the author of two, soon to be three, but I will stick with the two books, The Devil Never Sleeps, which we had on a Talking Books episode. She's the newly minted senior... Um, National security, security analyst for CNN. For and CNN, and right. newly minted contributor to The Atlantic. So read me, watch me. Or just basically, you can't me. get away from her. <laughs> no, and Asha Rangab is the newly minted, a newly minted legal contributor for ABC News. But she is 
a senior lecturer at the Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs, and a former associate dean at, at Yale Law School. She previously was a special agent in the FBI. Can you imagine getting arrested by her in New York City? Uh, where she specialized in counterintelligence investigation. She's a contributor on many television and radio outlets, and she has a podcast. It's complicated with Renato Mariotti, also many of you know. All right, so everyone, let's start by assessing what the last eight years have sown. There's you know, many ways to try to get at this, but here's an eye-popping statistic. The latest polling shows abysmal low levels of trust for the Bureau in particular, but all federal law enforcement. Is it as simple as the cumulative effect of bashing by you know, Trump and MAGA nation is it a partly self-inflicted? How did law enforcement, you know, always a proud institution to be part of, become this kind of difficult place? So yeah, I'll, I'll take the first swipe at this. I do think the relentless bashing by Donald Trump and others has had a cumulative negative effect, to be sure. But I also do think that a lot of it is due to the conduct and the actions of DOJ and the FBI. And if we're talking modern history, the last eight to 10 years, I trace it back to Bill Barr. I start with him. Of course, he was, you know, I, as I said, the subject of my first book. One of the beautiful things about working at the Justice Department, which all of us, well, you were nearby. All of us. Oh, no, that's all of us. All of us did is that it's almost in a sense, this platonic ideal of public service where the politics don't matter. Of course, the attorney general's nominated by the president. And the beauty of it is, the way it played out for me is my first four years there were under the George W. Bush administration. My next four were under the Obama administration. And it didn't make a damn bit of difference. I joke with Preet Bharara, who was my boss there. I say, I don't even remember the day you started. It didn't matter to right. us. We did the job, regardless of anything else. And the reason I was spurred to write this book about Bill Barr is it was making me nuts, sitting there watching what he was doing. Both in the sense of, A, his fundamental dishonesty. Look, he lied to Congress, he lied to the American public about major matters. And we all know the, the most important thing you have at DOJ is your credibility. And when the Attorney General compromises that, there are long-term effects to that. And then I also argue, that I hate this phrase now because it's become weaponized, but weaponization of DOJ. I mean, you want to talk about who weaponized DOJ? I, I didn't see anybody using DOJ to really more so protect cronies of Donald Trump, Roger Stone, Michael Flynn, and others, than Bill Barr. So I think when that happened, I think he badly undermined, the rightly, the public's confidence in DOJ. And Merrick Garland we'll talk about too. I, I've been critical of Merrick Garland, but I will say this for Merrick Garland. He has been a staunch defender of DOJ's integrity and independence, maybe you know not perfectly executed, but he, but he has taken steps towards bringing us back. And the other thing I'll say about Merrick Garland, again, there are legitimate criticisms. The man has not lied to us. And sad, sad that you have to praise an AG for not lying, but coming after Bill Barr, you I'll do. I'll say more. I was there with him. He doesn't lie. Yeah. But anyway, so all right. So we have one uh, vote for sort of self-inflicted wounds. Frank, you've really thought about this a lot with the Bureau yeah. Uh, what, what's your thinking of, of how, how they got, yeah, how I, we got here? I, I think, you know, part of why I've thought about this a lot is it, partly because I have to talk about it so much, unfortunately, on television, but also because I, I'm so wedded to the agency I came from and, and spent yeah. 25 years about, it, and it's very anguishing to think through this. But look, Ellie has a, a point here. There are self-inflicted wounds. I, I'll go back before Barr. Let's go back and remember uh, Jim Comey. And if you've read my first book, The FBI Way, wherever you find, find books, um, I spent some time talking about this. Look, Jim Comey's a great human being, a man of devout faith. You, you'd want him watching your kids as a next-door neighbor. It's all great. But he made mistakes with the Hillary Clinton decision-making. He forgot he was the FBI director. He had been the DAG, the Deputy Attorney General. He had been the U.S. Attorney SDNY. He thought he was making a senior prosecutive decision. <laughs> That's not what the FBI does. And telling it to the country. Yeah, and oh, let's hold a press conference uh, about it. So that got him sideways, and then of course the flip-flop, right? Oh, uh, no, we're not done with that investigation. We're reopening it. We have new information. Oh, no, we don't, right on the eve of, of the uh, election. So lots of people upset from both parties when you do that, and that helped politicize the FBI. But more importantly, it gave Trump a reason to come after the FBI. 
And then, of course, the, the opening of the Russia investigation, of course, caused him to target the FBI. And then, look, I've got this in my book, and it's awkward, but Pete Strzok did not help things when he's... I'm not talking about having the affair. I'm talking about the judgment involved as a senior executive running the arguably the most important investigation in FBI history, and you are exchanging texts and emails with your lover about the investigation. Not good judgment. So does the public have a right to be upset about that? Yes. I just want to say I am waiting for the historical chronicle of all the other anti-Hillary uh, uh, emails. Because like, there's a pretty common, I think, dynamic. I think Ellie would, would back me on this, where AUSAs tend to be more left and agents I, more right. Sure. But Can let I, me stick. We've got two votes for self-inflicted. And what I want to say about both of these is they are kind of inside baseball, right? We're talking about a, grand, a big popular phenomenon. Yeah. Maybe people out there are thinking, it's Bill Barr, it's Pete Strzok. But it feels like it's bigger than that. Yeah, I would go back farther. So the FBI has always been criticized by the left, the far left, right. going back and, you know, rightly so for it has a checkered past going back to the Church and Pike hearings, COINTELPRO, which primarily targeted Vietnam War protesters and the civil rights movement, etc. But what I don't think people appreciate is that there was also an element of the far right that has always hated federal law enforcement. One of the groups that Hoover targeted, most people don't know, was also the KKK. There is a deep running line of wanting to, you know, dismantle federal law enforcement in this whole white nationalist movement that goes back to the 60s and 70s. Has a through line to Timothy McVeigh, who read the Turner Diaries, which has a whole blueprint of instigating a civil war uh, in which basically they fight against federal law enforcement and kill them all. I think what you what is happening is that it's the horseshoe effect, which is you've had this left side that's always you know been critical of the FBI, and now you have this extreme right wing element where there has been a convergence between that and a portion of the Republican Party. And so that fringe... That feels new. That is new. Yeah. That is new. Because the political right, the mainstream political right, has traditionally been a law and order, right? Yeah. Uh, and But the whole, you know, this uh, alignment, and we saw this on January 6th, we've seen this with the rhetoric that is coming um, from people in Congress. I mean, Tommy Tuberville actually question what, what's wrong with having white nationalists in the military. So there's actually been a convergence and a mainstreaming of that fringe element of the far right, which includes as sort of a matter of philosophy, a hatred of federal law enforcement. And I think that that is what we're seeing playing out and coming through in the rhetoric and a lot of these actions. And I think it has a thread that goes much farther back and that we have not treated as a coherent ideology in the same way that we've treated things like, you know, Islamic terrorism. We've just, we've assumed that these are all lone wolf actors who just, you yeah. know, happen to blow things up every few years or something, but they, there is a through it's line. A movement. We're really in your strike zone, Juliet. Yes, yeah, so I mean, the, the, there are no lone wolves is my line. It's because um, it is, it is just conceptually incorrect to view this as a, oh, this bad guy and that bad guy. I, maybe it'd be helpful to just describe what, what was simultaneous with everything that they're describing in the white supremacy movement. And I say this carefully, I'm not defending it. I just, I think it's helpful to understand what was going on simultaneous with, with the political side. So, so the first is, and I think it's not a coincidence, in 2016, uh, the first year of the U.S. Census, when Donald Trump becomes president, the first year in the U.S. Census, uh, that the U.S. Census determines that non-white U.S. babies are now outnumbering white U.S. babies in birth. So we're now going to be a majority non-white, and it depends on how you define white, so I'm being careful, is it Caucasian, Hispanic, whatever. But basically, that trajectory is there. That's great, all of us in this room are probably like, that's okay, that's my family, right? We understand that. That becomes a trigger as Trump is coming in. So that's number one. Number two is, of course, social media. There are no lone wolves. These people are organizing, they are getting they're getting approval online to, to sort of think this way. So that's number two. So what, what was different in the same masters? And then number three, 
which is, it's just nurtured. It was being nurtured from the White House. I mean, these terrorist groups, they're, and I want to be careful, MAGA is not the terrorist group. It is the violent wing of, of the white supremacy movement. So even white supremacists, I'm going to put aside. I'm only focused on the violent wing. They are being nurtured through a policy wonky word called stochastic terrorism. But Trump is essentially luring them to activity. And we've never seen that before as high. And we've and the and the GOP had the opportunity to uh, shame it, to isolate it, chose not to. Anyone could have told them that this trajectory doesn't self-correct. It now turns on you, right? So that now everyone running for office has to be more and more extreme. So that nurturing is through the sort of, oh, I was only joking. I call it the come hither of violent extremism is where I think then that became the phenomenon that turned against federal law enforcement because Trump told them to. And then basically, you know, honestly, has turned against itself now. I mean, it just, it just if you're a Republican who's not for... Trump, I mean, we, some of them are here speaking, it's, you know, you're, you're facing the same personal attacks that the four of us have uh, for being critics of Trump. And you have to, I mean, it, it really is a stunning aspect how it's infiltrated the political race. Pretty much everyone has to say or wink that they'll pardon, you know, yeah. people who, who uh, assaulted the Capitol, et cetera. All right, we've got to gallop through so much. So I want to, that's where we are. And there's some different ideas about causes. I think people here would be especially interested in getting a sense of how or whether the onslaught has affected agency practice and morale. You know, I've heard from people who it was their proudest moment to stand up and, you know, Frank Figliuzzi for the United States. And it's sort of stunning that they're not, you know, they don't they don't have that kind of tailwind anymore. What, what's your sense of the impact on actual agency practice? And you can distinguish if, if you if you will, between how the leadership and the sort of rank and file. But here we are eight years later is pra our practices changed. Let me can I. Yeah, take a Frank, crack at that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. If you had asked me that question a year or two, and in fact, you may have on the on the podcast, <laughs> right. I got asked it a lot on on TV. Right. My answer would be different than it is today. Yeah. I would have given you the standard, you know, corporate response, which was agents keep their head down. They come to work every day. They just try to do the right thing, and they don't care about what's going on. They're not distracted. That's different today. I mean, you've heard the news that the FBI, for the first time in its history, has to stand up a unit now at headquarters to do nothing but monitor and track threats to agents, prosecutors, and their families. Never before have I, have I seen that have to happen. And then, you know, the bleed into, this is the question where Harry and I had talked about this very theme of today, which is, has Trump already won? And what, what do I mean by that? When I hear that, what do I think? Look, Carol Lennig at the Washington Post and others did some amazing reporting a while back on the loud debate amongst senior officials at the FBI's Washington field office and senior DOJ officials about the Mar-a-Lago search warrant and whether it was needed or not. Now, if you're sitting in a conference room and you lay out the evidence on the table, uh, the guy has rejected numerous uh, National Archives requests. He's lied to FBI agents. The head of national security at DOJ has visited personally, lied to them, lied to his attorneys. They filed a false statement. We have videotape of them moving boxes. It is a no-brainer for an FBI agent in training at the academy that that is a search warrant. And the head of Washington field office said, not on my watch. I don't want this to happen, right? And then the FBI director, in public response to the article in the Washington Post, said, I didn't know about that. Yeah. So two things to take away from that. FBI agents are, have become gun-shy at a senior level. Why? Everybody gets fired under Trump or attacked personally. And Chris Wray is not engaged in, in the biggest decision-making in the FBI. So we've got a problem. And, and why not, would you say? I right, mean, obviously, I, he absented himself. Why not? Because burned, you know, twice, you know, once burned, twice shy. Comey got fired. Yeah. McCabe got fired. Strzok got fired. I'm not getting fired. I, I think it's important for people to realize that 99.99% of people who work at the FBI and DOJ are non-political, apolitical civil servants. We think of prominent people, Bill Barr, Merrick Garland, Chris Wray, et cetera, rightly, they're, they're, you do need political appointed leadership. I think it's a fact, as you said up front, Harry, that 
public confidence in DOJ and FBI is low right now. I'm wondering how that impacts prosecutions and juries, right? Because when you start at DOJ, actually, this will tie back to a point you made, we would get the reservoir speech. I don't know if you all got this, but the speech was, when you come to work for DOJ, you are building on this reservoir of credibility. And it takes years and years, like a reservoir, to build up that supply of water, that supply of credibility, but you poke a hole in it, and it drains out real quick. By the way, ironically, the person who would give us that speech is Jim Comey, who I think, I agree with you, I think he's done a lot to undermine public confidence. In addition to what you say, he was found by OIG to have mishandled sensitive information, put it in his personal safe, gave it to the Washington Post. I think- One Jim, quick thing about him, he yeah. previously had been in star prosecutor, yeah. a line prosecutor, at the a thing SDNY. to know about. Yeah, so and, and so I think he did a lot of damage. When I started at the Southern District of New York as a prosecutor, it was 2004, early 04. So we're two and change years after 9-11. We're a mile maybe from ground zero. You stood up in front of a jury. They, we, Whatever you say, yes, you're with DOJ, you're with law enforcement, we're pro-law enforcement. Not that we want every single trial, but you absolutely had that benefit. Fast forward, when people started sort of doubting George W. Bush, and this happened more so with Trump, especially in a Manhattan jury, defense lawyers would get up and say, a good friend of mine tried a case and the defense lawyer I guess I can probably say, Mimi Rocco, who we all know, right? Not a Trump fan. She's trying a case. And the defense lawyer gets up and goes, this Trump administration lawyer wants you to, I mean, to say that about Mimi is crazy, but you see what I'm saying. So they try to exploit defense lawyers, and, and it's part of the job, exploit that lack of trust. I do wonder if there's data out there about trial results. Have they changed over the years? But that's why the institutional uh, credibility matters. You know, as much as we all, the ethic is very much keep your head down, do the work, do your job. That's what people do. But it does matter what the broader public thinks. I, I wonder if this idea of the apolitical line attorney or anything is just like a, a not not in a, a good way to think about it for the future. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna turn to uh, if you haven't had a chance to read Jeff Goldberg's uh, amazing cover story for the Atlantic, where he interviews outgoing now former uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff Milley. We live in an environment of lots going on in which people are willing to, you know, th this idea of law enforcement is apolitical, is the military of apolitical means that forces will use them politically unless they're savvy enough. And I do a lot of training of the National Guard and military, and I have come to believe that if you're not political, that's a political decision, mm -hmm. and therefore you will and be what used do you mean politically. By well, political Millie, uh, he admits now it, yeah. he was just sl he was slow to understanding what was happening to him that day in in Washington Square. He apologizes for it, and I sort of regret because I kind of publicly went after him. And you know, he's in his camouflage. He's he extricates himself by the time Trump gets to to the Bible scene. Mm -hmm. But he sort of, he's realizing what's happened. It's not his deployment that is the sort of the stuff going on in front. And he came to realize that the aura of apoliticalness was in fact a political statement. That you don't you can be political with a little p without being partisan. And I think we are not training the next generation to understand that, you know, I don't know if this is a permanent breakdown in the wall or can it be rebuilt, but at least a greater sophistication, you cannot think that you're not going to be used. This is a great, I'm, I'm not blowing smoke here, but yeah. that's a great observation because, and, and I, uh, correct oh, me if I'm wrong. thank you. I don't, you're welcome. I'm, I'm done for the year. I'm done for the year. I don't think, yeah. I, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're not yeah. suggesting yeah. that executives yeah. at law enforcement and intelligence and DOJ become political, but no. rather that they become politically savvy. You got to enter, or the they arena. should be when you, they you're start. You're in the yeah. arena, but yeah. you're not a fighter, yeah. right? So you, so, so, but if you think oh, yeah. that that this mechanism, and it's just clearly from the right now, but who knows? You know, but I, and I don't mean that both sides. It's just something has been broken. And if you think that you can sit outside and go, oh, I wish that that weren't true, or we're just apolitical, you are seeding the arena to one side only. And that's the Republicans. So that's how I would think about it. You're now. trusting that your decision making will be interpreted in a very neutral, yeah, apolitical way because I'm apolitical and everyone else will be. Well, just to tack on to that, we can talk about Merrick Garland, yeah. who I think has taken the this apolitical position, and we're just gonna, you know, play it straight and not make it look like there is any kind of political consideration happening. But as, as Juliet just said, it's, 
you know, if you have a vehicle that ha has been poorly aligned for four years and is driving off into, you know, bad terrain, at that point, just saying, well, we're just going to keep going straight is not going to help. You need to get it back. And I think that we've seen some, in, in my opinion, the slow rolling of the investigation into the top people behind January 6th. This allowing of this crazy Durham investigation for years and years, which which literally was a nothing burger. Now I'm I'm still confused about the appointment of a special counsel for Hunter Biden. I mean, all of these things, which I get, I think he thinks this will keep the Justice Department out of the political crosshairs. But it's such a miscalculation because no matter what you do, no matter what he does. The Justice Department is going to be put yeah. in the political crosshairs by Trump and all of his yeah, loyalists. You're not, you're not, you are not, I mean, my, my feeling is, is we've been doing this a very long time and look where we are. Like, in other words, like, it's exactly right. Like, it's, a, so for example, the personal attacks on federal law enforcement, whatever, you know, it's like this bland language of like, well, you know, we're not political. We just do our investigation. Facts in the law. Why don't we just get mad? <laughs> like, you are not allowed to, allowed to go after an FBI agent's kids online. You're just not. And I maybe I can't arrest you. I could be pissed. Asha makes some really good points that I completely she agree. She always does. Merrick Garland seems to think that he's discovered the solution to all of life's problems, which is... Appoint a special counsel. Yeah. Honey, there's dirty dishes in the sink. Who's doing them? I don't know. Appoint a special counsel. Um, and so I completely, his, his appointments of special counsel have been utterly nonsensical. Hunter Biden, why after five years? Number one, by the way, everyone knows Jack Smith and, and David Weiss. Who's the third special counsel? Anyone? There's a third. Anyone? Robert Hur, the guy who's been investigating Joe Biden's documents with his, poor, or his Corvette for eight months now. Eight months now. I don't know what's going on with that. And even the timing of the appointment of Jack Smith. And I, one of the things I'm very critical of Merrick Garland for in my book, to use Asha's phrase, he slow rolled the meaningful investigation yes. of the powerful people behind January 6th for a year and a half. And what was his rhetoric? Oh, we start at the bottom and we work our way up. That sounds good. That's not how good prosecutors and good FBI agents approach a case. You look for the highest point of insertion. And you know how quickly this could have been done? Took Jack Smith eight months. Eight months and then nine months to do his two, you know, simultaneously to do his two cases. If Merrick Garland had taken that approach, which all of us, Andrew Weissman, many others were, were saying, why is he doing it this way? This case would have been, the Trump cases would have been indicted end of 2021. We would have had trials mid to late 2022. It would have been all in the past now because of his delay. We're going to have this mess coming up. It's the committee shamed him. I mean, the January yep. 6th committee. I 100% forget right. 100 how right. important that was to this chronology, yep. that you could no longer, uh, and they were so brilliant in their performance of it in terms of only having Republicans. After they were done, if, what's their legacy? It may not be an arrest. It may not be whatever. Their legacy is they, sh I th essentially think they shame the Justice Department into saying we can't. Yep. There's been reporting. Anymore. Yeah, well, that's yeah, right. But I mean, it's more, yeah, I mean, they really were the pivot point. Okay, so a few points about uh, Merrick Garland. I'm always in this kind of position. I see him as one of the finest uh, public servants of the century. I'll just say, I understand all these points. I think there's a few different uh, things to be said about whether and the extent to which slow rolling occurred. But putting that to the side, I do think it's right. And he is smart, by the way. There's nothing we have said in the last five or ten minutes that would take him by surprise. But in his estimation, that mantra of of going you know uh, straight and true and not being I, I think your point it's a beautiful image like they were already in this car and he said I want I want to drive it straight and it's specifically the Hunter Biden case what we wound up getting you know it seems like everything with special and independent counsels dating back to Morrison v Olson we've screwed up in this country and we're always in the last round but we now supposedly are doing special counsels not independent for more guidance and congruence with DOJ policy. And in fact, for these reasons, it did turn out to be this apoliticalness was in effect a complete insulation. Weiss has been in effect a independent counsel and therefore has brought a case that DOJ wouldn't. So, you know, there are consequences. I just, I just want to say, I, I don't think 
all these things he made concerted decisions and from what he inherited in the department. But that just to put that in, I, I want to just stay with this theme a little bit to the agent level. That is, you know, do you have the sense that Ellie said 99.9? I would have thought that going in. But Frank, we've talked about it. Do you feel that agents, in fact, AUSAs, in fact, employees of the CDC are snake bit, skittish, actually affected in their day-to-day -day jobs, protecting us as a result of this onslaught of the last eight years? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd love to pretend that, again, it's not affecting them. But when I talk to some folks, and I, I'm eager to hear what Asha is, is hearing perhaps on the ground, she's had closer tenure in time than, than I have perhaps. But look, what's disturbed me the most is professional support employees, right? Remember, there's about, well, I don't know, 34,000 employees in the FBI. Only 14,000 are gun and badge special agents. The rest are... Everybody, everything from admins to evidence uh, technicians to linguists and, and on and on, scientists, that's who staffs a, a field office, you know? And so when a guy comes in with a nail gun and a, and a long rifle and tries to breach security at FBI Cincinnati and ends up getting killed by police in a cornfield in a standoff, it affects your perception of your job. And protests outside of many field offices. Think about a, a support employee, a professional employee, driving in to work every day, going through people screaming at you with placards and signs. Yeah, yeah, it, it does. It used to be the hero. What the heck happened? Yeah, right, there? what happened? Now, there's some good news. I, I hear, I, I, last time I checked on recruiting and, and hiring, uh -huh. still okay. You know, and boy, God bless those people who say, sign me up for that mission. Sign me up to be the unpopular one who's defending justice no matter what. There's some good news there. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll just add, I think I think we do need to talk about the fact that there is an element within the FBI that, you know, feel loyal to Trump. And we've seen that with some of the so-called whistleblowers who were trotted out by Jim Jordan. I think it's a very small group, but I think it gets to what is else is new with Trumpism, which is that it demands loyalty to an individual, right? It's very authoritarian in that way. It's not just being Republican or Democrat. It's that you are loyal to Trump as a person. And we're talking about institutions that require for their proper functioning a loyalty to the Constitution and to the values of the United States, then you have a tension. And I think this is the tension that Millie had to confront. This is what all of our civil servants have to confront, but especially with the military and law enforcement, it's going to be a problem. And I do think that element is there. And I think, in my opinion, speaking of slow rolling, I feel like that is what has made Christopher Ray very reluctant to do an internal investigation about the lack of action taken by the FBI in advance of January 6th, even though there were many, many signals and intel coming on their radar that they were not acting on. Had they been coming from groups linked to ISIS, that would have been shut down. But they were pussyfooting around it. And I think that Christopher Ray, I mean, I'm interested to take your take, Frank, but I think he's worried about a mutiny from some section of his, maybe his leadership, maybe some rank and files, if he were to drill down and really find out what was going on in advance of January 6th, because I think there were some people who may have been sympathetic to January 6th. And you're about to, I just want to lob one thing in the mix that makes this a novel period also for law enforcement, which is the presence of congressional oversight in an extremely aggressive way. And are you or your leader going to get like crucified on the, on the Hill? And how does that play in? But sorry. Yeah, just real, real quick. I, I, yes, Chris Ray is not, Bob Mueller, you know, he's not Louis Free. He's, there was a time period where I would check back with folks at headquarters and ask them, how are things going? And they said, well, here's how things are going. The boss walks, comes to work every day wondering if today's the day he gets fired. If you don't think that affects your decision making, you know, you're mistaken. It does affect your decision making. And this, of course, was under Trump, right? But again, he's very conservative, Federalist Society guy. As are, by the way, mo most people in law enforcement, let's face it, yeah. the job in law enforcement historically has been to preserve the status quo. That's conservative. And so, yeah. and so you know, I get that. I, totally. But with regard to the ranks, 
Yes, not so much all about pro-Trump, but rather, hey, we see the worst of society when we're in law enforcement, right? Crime is bad, right? The border is bad. And these people over here seem to want to do something about it, these people over here being MAGA, therefore, kind of like MAGA. That, that's what I hear from, from many people in law enforcement. On the point of the firing of FBI directors or the uh, constant looming threat of firings, when Jim Comey got fired, when I first heard that news, my first reaction was, oh, you can't do that. It's a 10-year yeah. term, right? It was unheard of. Now, the, the irony, I guess, is that the pretextual reason for his firing was actually the good reason, which is the, the mishandling of the Hillary Clinton case. Of course, we know the real reason because Donald Trump said it to Lester Holt to end the Russia thing. Um, and now we have Chris Ray on pins and needles and will he last? And, uh, you know, and the contrast, I was, I, I believe, didn't Obama extend Robert Mueller beyond yes, 10 years? years? And on the topic of congressional involvement, we saw last week Merrick Garland went up to the Hill. Tradition, you have to trek up there once in a while as AG. And he did what AGs in his situation always try to do, which is two different things at once, which may be your intention with, with one another. One is to stand up for the independence and integrity of DOJ. The other of which is to do that while saying absolutely nothing whatsoever of any substance. And um, I do think, you know, we could be headed down that path because next week we're going to see the beginning of the impeachment inquiry looking at, into some part of the Biden family or something. They're going to want documents from DOJ. DOJ will refuse, as every AG has done and should do, and then we could be in a contempt scenario. That's just for show, though. I mean, contempt. Congress finds someone in contempt. Where does the case get sent for prosecution? DOJ. DOJ. Look how that works out. But I mean, we've seen Eric Holder was held in contempt. Bill Barr was held in contempt. Nothing ever happened. But Merrick Garland's going to be tested here. And he has, to his credit, he has always been a staunch defender. Maybe not as emotive <laughs> as we would prefer, <laughs> but he has always stood up for the integrity of DOJ. He will hold that line. He will not crack open the case files as much as it might help him give a snappy answer to, or, or, or a responsive answer to a Matt Gates or a Jim Jordan and to say, no, here's the deal. He Which, by the way, wasn't the case in the last administration. Things were cracked open that veterans yeah. of DOJ, you know, were stunned about. And now, a word from our sponsor, the American Civil Liberties Union. Hi, I'm Maribel Hernandez-Rivera, a Deputy National Political Director at the ACLU. The promise of America is to serve as a beacon of hope and freedom for people fleeing persecution, violence, war, and human rights violations around the world. Yet, the Biden administration has chosen to replicate harmful and illegal Trump-era policies that ban people from seeking asylum at the southern border, betraying the ideals that represent the best of our country. Biden's asylum ban is causing needless suffering and placing people at grave risk. The ACLU successfully sued the Trump administration when it implemented asylum bans. And now we're suing the Biden administration over their own ban. For more on how the ACLU is fighting for the rights of asylum seekers, go to ACLU.org. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we discuss adding the right amount of water to a glass of whiskey without turning it into a whiskey river. The thought of adding water to any golden brown whiskey might bring tears to the eyes of some whiskey drinkers, but for others, Adding a few drops of water to your glass has its merits, and actually improves and enhances the flavor. The phrase, open up, refers to the release of the extra flavor you taste by adding those drops of water. And here's a little bit of science that helps reinforce that theory. When water is added to whiskey, it releases the guaiacol, which is partially responsible for the smoky and spicy flavor. When guaiacol is released, it rises to the surface so the aromas are more easily noticeable allowing your palate to experience the smell and flavor that imparts on the drink. And while there's really no right or wrong way, some say adding a splash of water brings out the best in your glass of whiskey. Of course, going overboard with the water has diminishing returns, watering down the whiskey and proving once again that moderation almost always wins. So the next time you're thirsting for a little experimenting of your own, 
Stop into your local Total Wine and More for a whiskey selection that suits every budget. And that's a scientific fact. So find what you love and love what you find only at Total Wine and More. Cheers! Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right, here we are. We've certainly, we've talked about this, the state of play. We've talked about the causes. Let's entertain the, um, the hypothetical because if the counter hypothetical is sort of unthinkable that uh, Trump will not be president, say, in a year. But still, we have uh, what you've described as a kind of root and branch problem in law enforcement. What needs to happen to restore law enforcement to not just its reputational status quo ante, but its its effectiveness and vigor, uh, which we wanted right. to have. So I want to just start as the person, one person who who was not a prosecutor. I was yeah. at DOJ um, on the on the civil rights side. Like we also like let's just take a gut check about how much people love the FBI. Period. I yeah, mean, yeah. I just finished uh, Jonathan Eggs. Uh, he's here, I think. I, I, I'm such a groupie. It's such a great book, King book. I mean, let's you know, if you're from the African American community, I'm yeah. not loving that. I'm not loving the FBI that much. So, so let's just like like not right. think there's a unicorn yeah, nice. and rainbow view of this. What we're talking about is can the FBI effectively do its job, uh, which is the prosecution of, of federal statutes. So I have been thinking and writing about and especially this. Especially terror, national terror. Terror. Okay, so let me just, I don't want to say this is simple. Uh, four days after January 6th, I wrote a piece that got a lot of criticism, and I, but I could not think of another way to think about what's happening. And it was just, we have to treat this period we're in as a large counterterrorism effort and think about decapitating in quotes, the leadership, deplatforming him, prosecuting, getting the soldiers, everything that we're doing January 6th, all the different pieces that we would think about as a counterterrorism. But the measure of success, and I want people to understand this, because if you spend a lot of time on Twitter, like you're, you know, you, you think the only success is Donald Trump, you know, in an orange suit, whatever. I'm going to be honest with you. Donald Trump dying alone in Mar-a-Lago is fine with me, right? If he's not president, right? This is our number one goal, right? Because the presidency is so vaporized how, painlessly, right? right? It's yeah. just like, just yeah. like whatever. There is not an on-off switch in which you know, America is great and America sucks. Like it is, the question is, is, is this violent extremism movement, which we're seeing captured, is it growing? Is it, is it getting bigger, uh, increasing or decreasing? All the metrics are, we did a good job. So good job, America. I mean it every, you know, whether it's the proud boy leadership, like whatever, these groups are noisy. They are not growing. And I, and I think it's important that when we think about, success and you know I, I I deal in the world of disasters right I'm not looking for unicorns and rainbows I'm looking for less bad and that's where I think we need to begin to think of our metrics so I don't you know I know everyone wants him everyone on cable wants him in an orange suit this is the one you always hear I mean you guys don't do this but like you'll hear it's like this is this is the time he really can't you know what he is gonna whatever just go away right do not be president that's all. I've taken a hopefulness away here, and, and I'm not sure I'm there yet. Okay. And, and here's, here, but here's why. Trump going away doesn't get us to normal uh, in, any, in any quick fashion. So I wonder all the time whether we have developed a semi-permanent insurgency in the United States. And, and yes, you're saying it's not growing. The data on Proud Boys, for example, is they have grown, and they have 200 chapters in America, but they're becoming different. Yeah. They're different, they've morphed. So it's not necessarily that they're every weekend uh, beating up people, mostly in California and the Pacific Northwest, which is a weekend activity for them. Yeah. But, but now, no, they're at the school board meeting or the PTA meeting, or they're volunteering for election worker jobs. That concerns me almost more because you can't really easily find them when they're wearing a suit and tie. So that's, that's a concern of mine. And the other thing is, which we're talking a lot about law enforcement, understandably, because of who we are. But this Trump effect surpasses law enforcement. The Centers for Disease Control right now is wrestling with what to do about the booster shot. I don't know. Should we come out and say everybody should have it? How, how strongly so? Should we, should we offer free testing to everybody, which they just did, but much hand-wringing about that. DOD, 
Are we woke at DOD? Should we stop this training? Are we going to get anybody appointed to general or admiral? Right? It's affecting every institution. And I don't know if that goes away Even quickly. with Trump not president, right? Yeah. Is, yeah. is there Trumpism? Yeah, because he's not the president. So on the question of what happens next and, and where do we go in terms of public confidence, obviously a lot of is at stake with the upcoming Trump trials, which we now have four of them. I, I don't have a rooting interest in this. I don't particularly care politically whether he wins or loses the election. I wrote in my book, so it's, it's in black and white, that I believed he should have been indicted quite a while ago uh, for various uh, offenses. But what I'm really big on now is this has to be done effectively. This prosecution has to be handled effectively and fairly to Donald Trump. On the effectiveness, I have my issue with the timing, but all indications so far that the, the indictments look sound for the most part to varying extents, but I don't have a big problem. But we can't lose sight of the fairness of the way we go about this. We collectively go about this. And I do have, and I have been vocal about, I do think some shortcuts are being taken. I do think some constitutional protections are being short shrifted that are owed to Donald Trump. I think forcing him to trial in March is ludicrous. I've said this on air, 12 million documents. That is not fair. You would not force a normal defendant to trial that quickly. People say, well, we, the American people, are entitled to know before the election. Blame DOJ for that. They're the ones who wasted time. There are too many shortcuts that I already see being taken when it comes to Donald Trump's constitutional rights. And I say this, I'm not a bleeding heart. I was you know, 14 years as a prosecutor. But ultimately, any misstep, heaven help us if there's a Brady violation or prosecutors make some sort of actual you know, step towards misconduct. They've not done that. But it's also going to be really important that we look back and say, whatever the outcome, this was done fairly. And I'll just, I'm not equating this, but I'll just give you something that sticks with me. I did a piece for CNN on the 60th anniversary of the 1961 war crimes trial of the Nazi Adolf Eichmann. I interviewed the Israeli prosecutor who was 94 years old. He's since passed away. And the top Israeli investigator, 97-year-old guy, essentially your, your brethren in law enforcement, uh, who was himself a survivor of Auschwitz. <laughs> no, I mean FBI. He was a, I think he caught... I, no, no, rules, rule of holes. I don't mean he's your brother age-wise. I mean, he's spiritually aligned with your, my FBI friends. Survived Auschwitz as a teenager and came back and, and prosecuted... And both of these men who I had the honor of interviewing, they were, of course, proud of the work they had done, that they had brought Adolf Eichmann to justice. I'm not comparing Adolf Eichmann to Donald Trump. What I am bringing out of this is the thing they were most proud of is that they did it fair. They tried Adolf Eichmann, the monster of monsters, fairly. When I had dinner with Gabriel Bach, the prosecutor, all he wanted to talk about, we gave him his rights. We let him have a lawyer, a lawyer of his choosing. We gave him all the evidence in advance. We let him cross-examine. He needed more time. He actually says this. He needed an adjournment. We gave him an adjournment, everyone. And so I think that lesson sticks with me. And if we're talking about rebuilding trust, there's going to be more focus on these Trump trials than... 10,000 prior than all trials in prior humanity. And so DOJ and the FBI need to be on the very, very top of their game, both in terms of doing it effectively, but also fairly. Asha, final thoughts to you. Yes, well, on Ellie's point, I would just push back and say Donald Trump has also gotten much more leeway than any other defendant would get in this country. Uh, anybody else who hoarded hundreds of classified documents, including nuclear secrets, wouldn't have had, you know, the FBI slow rolling search warrant. And he also has, at least in one case, a judge who clearly appears to be in his favor and, you know, bought into some really specious legal arguments that also contributed to the delay in the prosecution. But I'll agree with Frank that I don't think that, you know, these issues go away with Trumpism. And just to circle back to my original point, because you, you just have this merging right now of a political party ideology with an extremist movement. And that places the FBI in just an intractable situation. And I think this gets to your point of how do you how do you remain apolitical when you have those two lines that have crossed in the very threat you are facing? This is what happened with Donald Trump, is that the president of the United States was a national security threat. And so how do you investigate that without appearing as though you are politically motivated? And I really don't know what the answer is unless there is a move, there is a push within the Republican Party to push that extremist wing back into the fringes and, and get those guardrails back up and, and so that they can move back to the center, towards the center. 
And I'll just add for 20 seconds the point, one of the reasons I think for the unpopularity of, of law enforcement, traditionally, you're, you know, you're not loving the FBI, there's this kind of you know, anonymity and, and fungibility, but they are human beings, is the Latin that Frank said, and you know, they react to this stuff, and for good or for bad. A big thank you to our guests and to our very gracious hosts here at the Texas Tribune Festival, Evan Smith and his Cracker Jack staff who outfitted us with a terrific podcast studio for the day. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a minute to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we're posting full episodes, talking books, and other bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for our supporters. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether they're for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate produced by Catherine Devine, sound engineering by Matt McArdle, our research producer is Zeke Reed, Rosie Don Griffin, and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Meredith McCabe, Akshaj Turbailu, and Emma Maynard. A special thanks for his help in all of these productions to Akshaj Turbailu, and our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.